We're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, this summer, we've been looking at stories of the king. So we've been jumping around, really following the order of the children's story Bible, but looking at key scriptures from the Gospels that give us a picture of what Jesus is really like. We live in a day and age where we are just so hungry for righteous leadership and so aware that it is missing so often in our culture. We long for true leadership, for a true king, for someone who can truly lead us into what is good, and Jesus is the one who can do that. And so when we look at the scriptures, we become more aware of who he is and what he has done for us. This week, as we look at Luke chapter 15, we're calling it the rejoicing king. The rejoicing king. What I would like you to ask yourself is your own image, your feelings towards God as king. Do you see him as ambivalent? Maybe good and righteous, but distant from you. Do you see him that way? Perhaps you see him as angry. Perhaps you see him as uh, disgusted with you. I don't know what your vision is, but we're told in John chapter 14, a different passage, that when we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. And so again and again this summer, we're looking at Jesus and we're listening to the stories that he tells us to understand truly who God is. And in this story, he gives us this amazing picture that God is not actually disgusted with us as we may have thought before, but he rejoices over us. It's a really amazing story. And it comes in a series of three stories. So this is the third story. It's often called the story of the prodigal son. Any of you ever heard that before, the story of the prodigal son? Pretty famous story, right? I think all of us have heard it. It's one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. It comes after two other stories where Jesus talks about losing things and then rejoicing over finding them because they are valuable. He talks about a sheep lost by a shepherd and how the shepherd goes to great lengths at his own peril, at his own risk, to find that lost sheep because it is valuable to him. And he tells the story of a lost king, and we see this, this uh, a lost coin, I should say. We see this person who's lost a coin, not just like a quarter or a penny, but a very expensive, important gold coin or silver coin. And this lady turns her house upside down looking for it because it's valuable to her. And then he comes to the story that we're going to tell today about a father who sees his son as valuable, even when that son has been disrespectful. Now, we have to understand that Jesus had this habit of kind of turning our normal world upside down, our normal frame of reference. And this is important. We still need this today. I saw a movie years ago called Chocolat. I'm not necessarily recommending this movie to you, but it was a story that did this kind of stereotypical thing where it set up that the religious people were bad and mean, and the secular pagan people were good and sweet. And so at your first watching, at your first hearing of the story, you'd be kind of miffed, right? Because you're saying, oh, this is just one more story saying how bad religious people are. But what's interesting is when you, you look at the stories of Jesus, he often did the same thing. He said, you know what? Sometimes the religious people don't actually reflect God the way they should. And Jesus would turn the tables. One of the most famous places he does this is another story in Luke chapter 10. Well, Jesus is doing a similar thing in this story. He's, he's turning the table. He's, he's flipping things around a little bit on us, so we're going to have to pay attention. I just want to encourage you to be alert as we look at the story that you might have a different picture of God as king than Jesus is going to give you. 
So we want to think about that. What's our picture of God? How do we view the posture of the king towards us or towards the bad people? And then what does Jesus reveal his posture to be? So context is, before he starts these stories, that people were grumbling that Jesus tended to love sinners. Jesus loved the bad people. He loved the outsiders. And they didn't like that. The religious people didn't like that. So we're going to pick up Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, if you want to follow along. Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the, son, uh, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring us the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So far, this story is similar to the previous stories he's told of finding something valuable and celebrating its return. And then he adds a twist at the end here, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, the brother, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As I said, this is a startling story. And he adds a twist at the end there of this story, showing that the brother, the older brother, is not on the same page with the father. And that's Jesus' challenge to those of us that are religious, those of us who have devoted ourselves to doing what the Father asks, but then we're angry when the Father celebrates forgiveness and grace of those who have not done what the Father's asked. And so this is pushing on us as it's pushing on the religious leaders of the day to ask the question, do I rejoice along with the king? Do I rejoice in the things the king rejoices in? We live in a very fractured society right now, and we are taught again and again we have to pick this side or that side. I think what Jesus is showing here is you've got to pick the side of the Father. 
not the sides on the ground, but you've got to pick the side of the king and decide if you want to be on his side and rejoice over what he rejoices in. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at it in more depth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray, especially as we look at a story that many of us have studied and read and heard, told again and again, that you would help it to be fresh for us, that you would kind of wake us up from what sounds like typical and something we've heard before, that you would just shake us out of our stupor. Help us to see you and your goodness. Help us to see, God, your rejoicing attitude over lost ones. And God, I pray that you would help us to be those who rejoice over what you rejoice over, but also that you would help us to be the ones that you do rejoice over ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story would have been very upsetting in many ways. Um, It's a twist on what Jesus was saying before, because the other things that he talked about being lost and then found, people could have kind of followed him with, right? Like, okay, I get it, an expensive coin. Yeah, that's valuable. You'd go looking for it. But that's a stretch, Jesus, to say that sinners are like expensive coins, right? So they would have kind of followed the logic of, I see that 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 coin is expensive, but I'm not sure about sinners being valuable to God. And then he told the sheep story, a lost sheep. And they're like, again, I could see following a sheep. And yeah, sheep are kind of dumb. And okay, maybe that's, that's helping me understand a little better how God relates to sinners. And then now this final story with the sons, Jesus is like driving a hard point here because the son is disrespectful. The son humiliates the father by asking for his stuff and running away. He takes away the father's dignity. He disrespects the father. And that's much more like what it is when we turn from God. We're disrespecting him and it's wrong. And Jesus is making it clear that it's wrong. So what I want you to understand up front is Jesus's view of grace is not one that says that sin does not exist. That's a dangerous heresy that's being preached in many places today, that grace means there is no category of sin. Please do not think of it that way. What grace is, is grace is that God loves us so much, he overcomes our sin. Our sin is serious. Our sin is rebellion. Our sin brings the wrath of God on us. It brings destruction into our own lives, and our sin destroys the people around us. It's dangerous. And so please don't hear Jesus or me saying, yeah, go sin, no big deal. That's not his view at all. What he's saying is that all of us have sinned and as disgusting and undignified and disrespectful as it is, we have a God who rejoices over us despite the fact. And he takes our sins so seriously, he sent his very son to take our sins upon himself on the cross, to die for us and to rise from the dead, proving he conquered our sin, he buried it once and for all. And so grace, love, the rejoicing of this king over us who are sinners is not because sin is no big deal. No, it's such a big deal he sent Jesus for us, but we still have to deal with the fact that the father, the king rejoices over us. Do you believe that? Or do you believe he only rejoices over you when you get everything right? Here we see he rejoices even over the greatest sinners. And so as we move through the text, here's my outline. We're going to see, first of all, that we should long for the king. The same way that we see that prodigal son longing to go back home. We should long for the king. Secondly, we see him actually running back to the king. We see him actually taking that movement. And we see the little speech he comes up with and what he's going to do. We should also run back to the king. 
But then finally, we see the older brother getting angry at the king, getting angry at his father for welcoming back this disrespectful son. And so we need to then also reckon with that and admit our own anger at the king. That's going to be the hardest point. We'll save that one for the, for the end, okay? So first of all, we have to see that we should also long for the king. So again, background, verse 11 and 12, this is very disrespectful. He's saying, basically, Father, I wish you were dead, right? He's saying in verse 11, if you look at it again, he said, there's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. In that culture, that was like, I can't wait for you to be dead. I wish you were dead now. I want your stuff. I don't want you. It was very, very disrespectful. Again, because of the distance of culture and time, it just seems kind of sterile to us. Like, okay, he wanted some stuff. That's fine, you know. No, it was very disrespectful. As a matter of fact, the word in the text is uh, bios, the word for life, biology. It's, it's more of a sense of, I, I, want, I want your life, you know. I want everything that you've saved up for me. It, it's a wishing of no more father and just the things. And then, of course, it says, he took it. What did he do with it? Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's where the word prodigal comes from. The word prodigal means spending all you have. It means reckless spending. Uh, So one of the books I recommend on this topic is actually called Prodigal God, because the author, Tim Keller, is, is turning this phrase and saying, it's about the son that spends everything he has, but actually God has done that by sending his son to die for us. He's spent everything he has by giving his son. So that book is called Prodigal God. I think Eunice is putting this in the show notes, but a few books that I would recommend and kind of dealing with the radical claims of grace that, that are being made here. One is Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. Um, and so Eunice will put the info for that in the show notes. The other is Jerry Bridges' book, Transforming Grace, just dealing with God's radical grace. It's called Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. And then finally, Jonathan Dodson. It's called The Unbelievable Gospel. The Unbelievable Gospel in the sense of it's so good it's hard to believe, right? <laughs> and this gets a little more into how to share that grace. These first two are about how to reckon with that grace. So there's some great books I would recommend to you to check, to check out, get a little more information on what this grace means from different authors, different insights. Um, But here we see him spending everything he has, being reckless, squandering the money. And verse 14 says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. So he's off in this other country. He spent everything, and now he's starving. And it says he began to be in need. So verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he's longing to eat the food that the pigs ate. We just got to understand, again, culturally, Jews believed that pigs were unclean. And not only did they believe they were unclean, like abstractly, like we shouldn't symbolically eat pigs because that symbolizes uncleanness, but they were personally grossed out by them. You know how when you travel to another country and people eat things that we don't eat, it just kind of makes you gag, right? Here's a picture I found of a rat on some trash. That would be a little more fitting for us in our culture, We don't eat rats. Typically, most of us don't, right? We see rats as disgusting. They feed off the garbage. If you went out to the garbage and ate garbage and ate rats, that would be disgusting, right? That's kind of the situation that he finds himself in, to even be close to them, right? To even be hanging out with them 
would, would gross us out, it grossed them out in this culture. So again, Jesus is, Jesus is pressing the point. Jesus isn't saying, well, he kind of sinned and it was no big deal. No, Jesus is trying to press like, this dude went off the rails, man. Like, this is insane. This is like, you know, people would have a visceral response as Jesus was telling this story. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This is so gross. If rats weren't gross enough for you, think of something more disgusting. Uh, one time, okay, I'm going to tell you, are you ready? This is going to be gross. If you can't handle gross things, close, plug your ears for a second, okay? Um, one time I op- opened a can of Vienna sausages when I was a kid and there were maggots in the can. I've never eaten Vienna sausages again, right? Matter of fact, my cousin thought it was so funny. I told the story before. She, sent, she bought me a can of Vienna sausages as a joke. I did not eat them, okay? Um, it's just this like, right? It's just grossing them out. He's telling a story like, this is so gross. How could he have fallen so far? And someone that fell so far, it says, verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He's, he's realizing, I'm longing for trash, and that wakes him up, right? It's a rock-bottom situation that makes himself realize, I'm longing for trash. I'm, I'm longing for something that is disgusting. That wakes him up to like, how much better to long to go back, to long for the king, to long for my good, good father. And that is really one of the gifts of finding ourselves in a place we never thought we'd find ourselves, Right? Is it disgusting? Yeah. Are you grossed out when you do things that you never thought you would do? Yeah. And, and probably rightfully so. But there's this sweet grace of waking us up, of coming to our senses. The phrase often used is rock bottom, right? Like you've, you've fallen farther than you ever thought you'd fall. You've, you find yourself doing something you didn't think you would do. Often sin seems sweet and satisfying at the beginning. And often, here's a secret for you, sometimes it is fun at the beginning, but it never ends well. Sin never ends well. It begins to enslave us. And so he wakes up and says, it'd be better to be a slave to someone good than to be a slave to something that's trying to kill me, my own sin. I want you to recognize that as well. You might be so overwhelmed with shame and just like being grossed out that you've hit rock bottom that you might be tempted to think he could never love me. God could never forgive me. My family could never welcome me back. But here he wakes up and he says, you know what? It'd be better to be a hired servant in my father's house. Now, some commentaries tell us that there's some technical differentiation here. Um, A lot of times when we talk about slaves or bonded servants, I have to clarify that a slave or a bonded servant under biblical law or under first century Roman law had much more freedom and rights than in the American system. So that can kind of throw us off, right? Because we kind of know about the chattel slavery system and how dehumanizing that was and how it was race-based and how just unrighteous that was. And so we want to say, yeah, that's not the, the Bible's not affirming that when it has a casual or neutral view of slavery. It was different systems of slavery under the Hebrew system and under the Roman first century system. And here, there's also an added little detail of the word hired servant, apparently that was more like a drifter, right? And so a slave or a household servant was someone who would have been taken into the family in that day and time, and that would have been better even than what he's suggesting. He's saying, 
Maybe I could at least be like the hired drifter. That would be better than right now what I'm in, right? So he's describing with a technicality the lowest of the low, the farthest down rung of civilization and saying, just having that thread of connection to my father because of his goodness and his kindness would be better than this rock bottom I find myself in here now, hanging out with unclean pigs and wanting to eat the trash with them. It's it's so disgusting. So my question for you is, have you found yourself in that place of rock bottom? Have you found yourself in that place where you're, you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And I just want to say, stop and recognize that God's kindness is sweeter than the enslaving power of the sin. And recognize that the shame of the feeling sick, viscerally feeling grossed out about your sin, can often drive you into more sin. But I want to encourage you to wake up and come to your senses just like he did. Right? Come to your senses. Don't let the shame drive you further away from the good father but let the shame wake you up and say, what am I doing? This is stupid, right? So number one, if you're hitting rock bottom, come to your senses and recognize that your father will embrace you and welcome you back, that he's a good king. Number two, don't wait for rock bottom. You hear that? Don't say, well, I heard abstractly that sin kills, but it hasn't killed me yet, right? Don't wait to be at that place where you're disgusted about how far you've fallen. You can stop now. You can stop now and begin longing for the Father. This longing for the pods is this word, epithumia, which in the Greek is often used in the New Testament for kind of an idolatrous over-desire for something. It's often used for loving sin and substitutes for God instead of God. But then sometimes it's also used for God. Sometimes we wake up. And we come to our senses, and instead of longing for sin and longing for false gods, false saviors of pleasure or relationship or money or stability, whatever those false saviors are, sometimes we wake up and we realize this isn't working out, and we have a longing for the true God, the true King who shows us love and grace. So stop, recognize the trajectory of your life, and turn, and that takes us to the next point of what happens here, verse 18 through 24, run back to the king. Starting in verse 18, he's come to his senses. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's practicing the speech of how he will win his father over, right? If you've gone into a job interview, you think through how you're gonna prove that you've got the necessary skills to Uh, help the company, and you know, you put on a nice outfit, and you try to clean up your resume, and that's what he's getting together, right? He knows he's blown it, but still, he's kind of trying to clean himself up and think through what he's going to say. He's going to grovel. He's practicing his speech, and it goes on here in verse, where is it, 19, and it says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is mind-blowing. The father was looking for him, number one, right? While he was still a long way off, it's like the father is just searching the horizon every day, praying, longing for the son to return. And he sees him. And what does he do? Does he wait for the speech? No, 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is really amazing. One of the biggest things that commentators, people that know a lot about first century history and Jewish history will point out is this is very unusual for an older man or even a middle-aged man to run. We talked last week about Zacchaeus and how crazy it was for a man to do the undignified thing of climbing a tree. Here's another example of that. It's very undignified and unusual in this culture for a man to run like this. They were supposed to be seen as like stately kings, even even just regular dads, regular fathers had this kind of kingly bearing they tried to present, right? They would wear long robes. They wouldn't run. They wouldn't get in a hurry. Um, he's doing the opposite of that here. He's running. I tried to find like an image of that, and I finally Googled uh, an 81-year-old man who runs these 5Ks and 15Ks all the time. So I found this, this story of this older guy. He loves Jesus. He runs. He had a grandson that died and his grandson had just started running, and just to remember his grandson, he now started running in every race he could, and just said, you know, I just thank God that I can still run, I just thank God that I can do this, and I've got this life to to live, so I'm going to do this in remembrance of him. Um, Well, probably the father in the story was not 81 years old, right? Probably the father in the story was more like middle age, and it wasn't a matter of him being too old to run in the sense of he couldn't physically run, the issue was one of dignity. And again, remember, what do the religious people of the day think? They think that this son should have been beaten and driven out of town. They think that this son was disgusting. So here's another turn. The first, the first part of the story that was surprising to the religious leaders is that the father just gave the son the inheritance and blessed him and let him go. That was shocking, right? He should have been beaten and disowned. Second shock is that he's longing for the son to return. He's saying, come home to me, son. He has compassion. He has love on him. He's pursuing him in grace and love. So we see this father running to him, having compassion on him. He's kissing him. In verse 21, now the son finally gets to share his speech. But, but pay attention. When you run back to God, he kisses you before you ever talk him into it. Do you see that? Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is an important part of our posture before God. And I think it is right and good that this is expressed when we recognize that we've hit rock bottom. We confess our sin to God. That is a part of what it means to be a Christian. What you're saying there is not that groveling wins God to you. It's just you are coming to terms with the truth. That I've chosen sin. I've rejected you. I deserve wrath, but I'm asking for mercy. And so again, the cross of Christ is a kind of grace that says God loves you and he's pursuing you and he has compassion on you, but it doesn't mean he just winks at sin and sweeps it under the rug. Sin is real and it is destructive and God takes it so seriously that he sent Jesus to die for your sin and for my sin. And so we have to recognize that. We need to speak truth about reality, but here we see that the father ran to the son before the son could ever share that speech. And so both sides of those realities are really important for us to to recognize. Sometimes we can get caught up in thinking, it's my running to him that wins him over. It's my speech about how sinful I am that wins him over. It's how seriously I recognize my sin. It's how much I grovel. It's how disgusted I am with how far I've fallen. No, none of those things are what actually wins God over to you. It's God's love for you. Deuteronomy 7 says he loves you because he loves you. 
Not because of how sad you were over your sin. Not because of how much you groveled. Not because of how much you cried. Are those things important? Yeah, they're important. That's important for you. But God loves you. And his love, his running to you, is what enables you to run to him. And so the father runs to him. The son expresses his sorrow. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The, the ring of a wealthy man would have been a signet ring. They would have sealed important documents with that. So this would have been the equivalent of he's a check signer on the business account, right? He's got the business credit card. He's fully brought back into status as a son or a prince of the king. He's clothed. And one of the images again and again through the New Testament is Jesus is that robe of righteousness that covers our shame and our brokenness and our outsiderness. And Jesus is the robe that covers us and brings us back into the Father's household. He's brought back in. He's given a ring. He's given shoes. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Here we see this beautiful picture of the king rejoicing over a sinner who's returned to him. Rejoicing over his child. That's God's posture toward you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even in your sin, God rejoices over you? And he's adopting, he's pulling, he's bringing you back into his family. That's this crazy picture here. And I love to point out the barbecue celebration here. I'm a good Texan. I love beef. He kills the fatted calf. This is an especially big deal here. We're spoiled in our day and age. We can eat barbecue multiple times per week. This was a big deal in that culture. This was more of like a once a month or every six months kind of thing, or maybe even once a year, depending on how poor the family or the village was. It was a big thing to have this kind of celebration. But they are partying. They are celebrating because the sun has returned. So again, I come back to the question I said at the beginning. What do you believe God's posture towards you is? Do you believe that he's ambivalent? Do you believe that he doesn't care? Do you believe that he's distant? Do you believe that he's angry? Or do you believe even that he's pleased with you, but he's pleased because of your performance? Here we see a God who, based on his grace alone, based on his action, loves his son, values his child. Two things, systematic theology-wise, that we see in the Scripture is that God says all human beings have value because we are made in His image. God values all people because we are made in His image. It's a really important starting place. And then sin separates us, fractures that image, breaks that image, tarnishes the image. But God, again, takes the initiative coming towards us, sending Jesus for us to heal that broken image. So the question is, does your picture of God, that he's ambivalent, that he's angry, whatever it is, does that keep you from running to him? Does that keep you from running back to him? I want you to see the picture of a God who's running to you, a God who's scanning the horizon looking for you, a God who rejoices over you. Again, John 14 says, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? If you're not sure of God's posture towards you, then review the stories of the king. Review the gospels. Look at what Jesus did for you, and then you will see God's posture towards you. And again, in our day and age, sometimes the rebels have a distorted view of God. 
God doesn't care about my good. I got to go find good on my own. I got to just go pursue love and pleasure and whatever I want to do that feels good. I'm going to go pursue that on my own outside of God's boundaries. That's the rebellious distortion of the loving father. But there's also the religious distortion. The religious misunderstanding of a loving father is, I've done what's right. And since I'm better than two or three of my neighbors, God has to be pleased with me. God has to bless me. God has to give me special attention because I'm one of the good ones. And that's another distortion of the Father. That's another misunderstanding of how the Father runs to you. And so this brings us to the last point. The last point is we should admit our anger at the King. Verses 25 through 32, admit our anger at the King. This is particularly focused on the religious folks, particularly focused on those who have tried to do what's right. And again, not to be unfair to you, but most of you, lean at least towards this category. Some of you are stumbling in as prodigal sons saying, I've messed up and I need Jesus, right? But a lot of us have been trying to follow him for a while now. We've been trying to do what's right. And we can fall into this trap of saying, God, I've been doing what's right. Why aren't you blessing me more? Why did this hard thing happen? Why did you let that come into my life? Because I've been trying to do what's right, God. And if you find yourself saying that, you're, you're like the older brother. I admit In my own life, I drift towards this view. So starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. It's like, I hear a huge party. Why is there a huge party? Why is there a huge celebration? Verse 27, he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. I grabbed a picture of people dancing in a party. Um, Just the picture alone sometimes makes religious people uncomfortable. Um, If you're Baptist, I'm sorry, I know this especially makes you feel uneasy. Uh, That's a joke, okay. But really, religious people, right? We're, We're uncomfortable with too much partying and celebrating. That's kind of what's happening here. There's this big party. There's this big celebration. Not only does that make religious people uncomfortable in general, but specifically here, it's the thing that's being celebrated, right? It's kind of like the father is celebrating badness. You ever feel that way? If I love this sinner too much, if I befriend this outsider, they might think that I approve of their sin. They might think that I think it's okay that they're thumbing their nose at God and rebelling against his laws. And again, Jesus never says it's a good idea to break God's law. Jesus never says it's a good idea to to thumb yourself, your nose at God and say, I rebel against you. I don't want to do what you say. He never says that. And yet he loves sinners. We have to wrestle with that paradox. And the insight from the story is if we're really frustrated by our friends loving sinners or by God loving sinners, or by Jesus-loving sinners, chances are we don't recognize that we're sinners. (laughs) Because if we're honest, we would recognize we're sinners too, and boy, I sure hope that God celebrates over sinners. I sure hope he rejoices over lost ones. And again, for context, one of the quotes that Jesus gave in the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep is there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner than 99 who don't need to repent. 
And again, in the whole New Testament context, those stories, those paradoxes, those riddles that Jesus are saying, what he's really saying is if you're a religious person that thinks you're doing things right and God must bless you, then you don't actually recognize the truth that you're actually a sinner that needs God to forgive you. And you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. And that's what's happening to this son. He sees the party. He hears it. Verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So again, Jesus is teaching this to the religious people that are angry that Jesus is having parties with sinners. And Jesus is saying, this is kind of what you're like. You're like this good son that refuses to join the father's party as he celebrates the return of the son. His father goes out, entreated him, begs him. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So goat is like level down from fattened calf, right? You never even gave me like tier two, right? So like in our context, my kids live in Memphis, so that'd be like we believe brisket is the true barbecue, and out there they have pulled pork. That's like second-class barbecue, but it's still better than nothing, right? And the same thing here. He's like, you didn't even give me second-class barbecue, the, the goat or anything, right? You didn't do anything like that. Like, why haven't you celebrated me? Verse 30, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, saying, This son of your, he can't even call him his brother anymore. Did you notice that? He's no longer his brother. This son of yours has done these disgusting things. He is so wrong. He is so sinful. How dare you, Father, forgive him? How dare you overlook his sin? Verse 31. Here's the father's answer. He said, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours, right? If you're with me, it's a party every day. Like everything I have is yours and everything that you have is mine. We, we share already. Like we're already connected, aren't we? I, I thought we were. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. And what's really interesting is Jesus leaves them hanging. It's a cliffhanger story. He just stops it right there. And the question for the religious people is, are you going to come in to the party? Are you going to rejoice over what your king rejoices over? Are you going to love what your king loves? Or are you going to continue to say, no, my righteousness is based on being the, the right member of the right team. I'm on this side of history. I'm the people that did the right thing. I'm the people that voted the right way, that uh, took care of my house the right way, that paid my bills the right way, that acknowledged people the way you're supposed to, that followed the rules. I did all the right things. How dare you bless people that didn't do the right things? And he's leaving them hanging. He's saying, well, don't you want to celebrate the things that I'm celebrating? Don't you want to come in? be a part of what I'm doing in the world? Jesus seems to be turning things upside down. He seems to be showing indiscriminate love for sinners. So even those of us who have tried desperately to do the right thing, if we drift towards thinking our status, our identity is based on how well or how thoroughly we're doing the right thing, 
then we're missing that, no, our status is the relationship with the Father, is being a part of the King's family. Our status, our identity, our joy is that we belong to him. That's what the father was trying to tell the son here. But you, you already belong to me, right? Or do you? Maybe you don't if you hate what I love and you love what I hate. And that's the question that Jesus leaves hanging, the question for all of us. Do I love what God loves or do I just love me? Do I just want to keep the rules so that God will be forced to bless me? I joke sometimes that that's like seeing God as a vending machine, and we're putting in quarters of obedience. You ever put quarters into a vending machine? I guess we use dollars and credit cards now, right? But you put money into a vending machine, and then something gets stuck and it won't come out? You're like, how dare you? Maybe that's just me that loses my temper when I'm hungry. I want a snack, but I'm like, how dare you, vending machine? You're withholding the blessing that I paid for. So often that's how we are with our religious works. Like, God, how dare you? I prayed. I had five devotions this week. And yet still there's the cancer or still there's the broken relationship or still there's the lost job. That's not fair. Jesus is saying that's not how the economy works. The blessing is in being related to the Father. That's the blessing. And then step two is to share that blessing with others to invite others into that party. And and some days you'll feel totally equipped to do that. Other days you'll feel weaker and more needy of the Holy Spirit to help you to see that, to help you to do that. I know I do on a regular basis. I drift in and out of this reality. So we want to wrap up by just saying, we have a king who rejoices over us. John 14 says, that understand who our Heavenly Father is, to understand who our God is, we have to look at Jesus. And that's what we're doing this summer. We're looking at Jesus again and again. This week we see the rejoicing King. We see the, the, king, the king who rejoices over us, even though we are lost, even though we have sinned, even though we've wandered from him. And he calls us to rejoice in the same things that he rejoices in. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, helps us to see, kind of connect the dots, that if you follow the Gospels completely, you recognize that actually Jesus is the good older brother. In this story, the older brother doesn't love what the father loves. But in Jesus, we see an older brother who does love what the father loves. Because in the way that the inheritance laws work, the older brother would have been given more of an inheritance, right? And so if the younger son got his inheritance, went off, wasted it, and he's come back now, he's getting more from the father. He's getting parties, and robes, and fattened calves. You know where that's coming from? That's coming from the older brother's account. Jesus is the older brother who says, I love what the Father loves. I love you. I'm going to give you everything I've got. Come into the party. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. Thank you that we see you clearly as we see Jesus and hear the stories that he tells and here's the actions that he takes. We We thank you. Thank you that you love us despite our sin. We confess often we're the prodigal that's blown it. We've done things that we're embarrassed about. We've done things that sicken us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to wake up and just say, man, it'd be better to be rock bottom in my father's house than to to stick with the sin. Help us to run back to you, seeing that you're the God that runs to us. 
For some of us, Lord, we've been trying so desperately to do what's right. Help us to confess before you that doing what's right is not what wins your love. But we should only do what's right as a response to your grace, to your fatherly love for us. Help us to see you as the the true treasure, the God, the King who rejoices over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.